0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Love Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast.
3: Here again are the three tweets from at real Donald Trump. After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow dot, 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 transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming dot, 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 Victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. That blew up the internet. That made the news. We're recording the opening for today's show earlier than we usually do five days earlier. So the day after Trump attacked transgender people serving in the military and things are moving fast. So today's opening may be out of date or even moot by Tuesday because this could go nowhere there's been a lot of pushback against Trump's proposed ban on trans people serving openly in the military and pushback from some unexpected quarters. Senator John McCain condemned it, but also batshit crazy right-wing anti-queer lunatic Senator Joni Ernst condemned Trump's proposed ban on transgender people serving openly in the military. And to be clear, executing Trump's orders or his tweet storm, it would require the military to expel trans people who are Already serving openly, which they've been able to do for more than a year now, which Trump doesn't seem to be aware of. And if trans people serving openly is disruptive and they're already serving openly, where's the disruption? Where are the examples? Where are the news stories? They don't exist because trans people serving openly in the military, just like lesbian, gay, and bi people serving openly in the military, which they've been doing for a few years now, is a big fat nothing burger, not a disruption. As for the expense, the tremendous medical expense of transgender people being in the military, as Parker Malloy pointed out within seconds of Trump's tweets going out, the military estimates that it will spend roughly $8 million-ish on medical care per year for trans troops. The military, that same military, currently spends nearly $100 million on Viagra and other boner pills per year. So, yeah, if you want to save money, it's dudes with erectile dysfunction that you should be banning from serving openly in the military, not trans troops. Okay, again, by the time this goes out, Trump may not even be pushing this policy anymore. And I apologize in advance if that's the case, because military leaders don't want it. The generals that Trump says he consulted with before making this announcement, the generals at the Pentagon, they say they didn't hear about this until they saw the tweets. So it appears that Trump is consulting with imaginary generals and not actual generals, which is scary to think about. Even scarier – actually, the scariest part of all of this, bigotry and discrimination are the worst parts, but this is the scariest part. During the nine minutes that elapsed between Trump's first tweet and his second tweet, the first tweet that went, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised the United States government will no longer accept or allow dot, dot, dot. The generals over at the Pentagon thought Trump might be about to announce an attack on North Korea. At the Pentagon, the first of the three tweets raised fears that the president was getting ready to announce strikes on North Korea, BuzzFeed reported. Only after the second tweet did military officials receive the news that the president was announcing a personnel change on Twitter. You know what's even scarier than the nine minutes the Pentagon thought the president might be announcing an attack on North Korea on Twitter? The nine minutes the North Koreans spent thinking the same thing, that they were about to be attacked, which might have prompted them to lob a nuclear missile or two at the West Coast of the United States while they still had time, or reduce South Korea's capital to rubble, which they could do in ten minutes. If you're wondering why Trump made this particular announcement, and everyone is... And why now and why out of the blue and why without consulting his fucking generals, why launch this attack on the LGBT community and trans troops already serving? Why at this particular moment? Rachel Maddow had the answer. Take it away, Rachel.
4: If Trump has to chew up and spit out Jeff Sessions in order to get at Mueller, well, the far right social conservative edge of his base is going to hate that because they love Jeff Sessions. Right. And so how do you solve that problem? Where you really need to get rid of Jeff Sessions if you want to get at shutting down the Russia investigation. But your far-right social conservative base really loves Jeff Sessions. After enjoying facile, vapid beltway reporting during the campaign that suggested that maybe he'd be awesome on LGBT issues, president today announced on Twitter... Uh, but apparently didn't technically issue an order and didn't warn the Pentagon ahead of time. But he nevertheless proclaimed on Twitter that he is now banning transgender troops from serving in the armed services. There are thousands of transgender troops serving openly in the armed services already. Honestly, it is not at all clear to me that the president knew that when he made these announcements this morning on Twitter. It's also not clear that the Pentagon is going to do what he said on Twitter. Because nobody understands what he's talking about, what the rationale is for this change, or even what the change should be. So it makes no sense. It is designed to hurt currently serving active duty service members and the military itself. But the president appears to be betting that if in his ongoing wave of panic, he feels like he needs to oust his hardline conservative attorney general without his hardline conservative base being too mad at him about it, the president appears to be calculating that maybe this kind of a wild punch will make them happy, no matter what other damage it does to the country. That that appears to be the calculation here, that no matter what damage this does, maybe it will make the kind of people who are mad at him about Jeff Sessions not so mad at him about Jeff Sessions anymore. That is our best guess at what he has calculated here.
3: <sighs> also yesterday, Trump's Justice Department, Jeffy e. Sessions' Justice Department, went to court and argued that current federal law doesn't protect LGBT Americans from workplace discrimination, reversing an Obama-era interpretation of anti-discrimination law. So all in all, LGBT Americans had a really bad week last week, courtesy of Donald Trump. And an aside to the small handful of gay male Trump supporters out there who argued that Trump would be better on LGBT issues than Clinton, we're all out here wondering how you get dicks in your asses with your heads up there already. All right, last word goes to Ross Duthat, the Catholic conservative anti choice columnist at the New York Times, who likes to lecture Pope Francis on the subject of Catholicism. I'm not sure how I feel about quoting Duthat at the end of my opening this week. A little squicky, to be honest. Feel a little squicky about it, but I'm pretty sure Duthat feels just as squicky. Having a quote of his read on my show to have his words in my mouth probably makes him pretty uncomfortable. So it's a wash. Trump's behavior in the White House, Dutha wrote last week, is no different from the behavior he manifested consistently while winning enough votes to take the presidency. But he is nonetheless clearly impaired, gravely deficient somewhere at the intersection of reason and judgment and conscience and self-control. Pointing this out is wearying and repetitive, but it still must be pointed out. This president should not be the president, and the sooner he is not, the better. All right, coming up on today's show, lots of your Q's, tons of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at SavageLovecast.com. The Magnum edition, twice as long and no ads. Go subscribe to it. Molina Williams joins us this week at the Magnum to talk about subspace and subdrop, and whether that's bullshit or not, or a real thing, and how to work with or around it. That's on the Magnum. Plenty on the micro. Glad you're here to listen.
5: Hi Dan, twenty-six year old here. My question starts about a year and a half ago. I started seeing this girl. Sorry for about a month. I had got a big crush on her, but things didn't work out. She decided to date someone else. You know, I was upset, but I got over it. Pretty quickly um flash forward to about two months ago and she hits me up again and says she's single again and wants to see me i said great we met up at a bar we really hit it off again and she told me that she regretted not dating me back a year and a half ago she really regretted it she regretted choosing someone else which was a sweet thing to say i really wasn't expecting it at all anyway we went out for a couple months and This time I really fell for. Uh, We have a great connection, great chemistry. We really get along well. I love spending time with her. And I was really trying to push it into a more serious relationship. I thought that's where it was headed until she dumped me. (laughs) Well, broke up with me. And um, she said that this person who she dated instead of me way back when was this asshole who abused her physically and emotionally and that she isn't healed from that yet and isn't ready to be in any relationship, which I told her, you know, I I totally understood that. And I really feel for her and that, you know, if she's not ready to be in a relationship, she shouldn't be. And if I'm a hindrance, then I shouldn't be around. But, um, and she told me that, you know, if she was ready to date me in a few months, that she would reach out to me again. Um, I'm, (laughs) I'm not, handling it well. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really upset about it. I'm upset for her that she's dated this piece of shit. I guess for me personally, I was, you know, I've just really spent my twenties in these kind of short term relationships that are fun, but you know, not emotionally fulfilling really. Um, I was felt this connection with this girl and I thought it was going to go somewhere serious. And I was just so ready to commit myself to her. And she's, you know, she can't, which I respect. I guess I'm just sort of at a loss for what to do going forward. I'm not interested in seeing anyone else. And it's hard for me to move on when she tells me that, you know, it's she didn't break up with me because of anything I did and because of, that I'm wonderful. It's just, she needs to, she needs to heal. And if you told me that, she would reach out to me in six months if i had to wait six months i totally would but you know i know that that might never happen so yeah i'm keeping my distance from her because that's what she wants but i miss her so yeah i'm just kind of at a at a loss for what to do uh, moving forward and uh and also very sad
3: she dated you Then she dumped you to date another guy. Then she called you back and wanted to date you again and did date you for a while. And then she dumped you because she's not ready to be in a relationship because she hasn't recovered from the abuse that she suffered at the hands of some asshole. All of that could be true, but here is my maybe uncharitable analysis of it. It could also fucking be a lie. I'm not over this person that I was in a shitty relationship with and the relationship could have been shitty and abusive, but I'm not over this shitty relationship and this is what I suffered and I have to work on myself. So I can't be with you right now. Unfortunately, that can be kind of a toxic version of it's not you. It's me. The sorts of things that people say to be kind, to absolve the person that they're dumping of any responsibility for the dumping that you're doing to them it's not you it's me is a polite way to let someone down easy it's considerate to a fault of someone else's feelings you don't want to sit there and say here are the reasons I'm dumping you X Y and Z you do this you do that you are this you are that I find this disgusting I hate the way you smell or taste or whatever people don't on the way out need a list of all the reasons you don't want to see them but they want a reason they want an answer and so people construct reasons and answers which usually put the person doing the dumping in the victim seat. I'm can't date you right now because I'm too traumatized from this past relationship or I'm too busy at work and school or my mom has cancer and I'm too crushed by family responsibilities right now or whatever it is. They lay out a reason that makes them seem a little heroic or gives them the mantle of victimhood, the unassailable mantle of victimhood. And they lay out a reason that lets you off the hook. It's not you, nothing about you. And it's our job, I like to say, when we are given and it's not you, it's me dumping to know or tell ourselves that it really is us. She's dated you twice. And both times she has decided that you are, for whatever reason, and her reason could be exactly as stated, but for whatever reason, you're not someone that she can be with right now. And you have to act like she's telling you the truth. You have to see the pattern here of her coming back to you and then letting you go for whatever reason and get on with your life. You have to feel your feelings. You can have a colossal sad. She's someone that maybe you could have seen yourself with, but you need to get out there and date other women. The only antidote to this kind of, well, it's not really a poison, but the antidote here is ingesting someone else's spit for a while. That'll help you get past her. And And you say you're ready for more and you say you felt this connection with her. Don't make the mistake of thinking that that connection you felt was something that she brought out of you or she put into you and then you reflected back at her. You made that connection because you're capable of making that connection. That feeling, that impulse to connect, that came from inside you. That wasn't something she did. It wasn't something that she uniquely elicited from you. That is something that you are capable of and can feel and do with and for another woman. You just have to get out there and meet other women once you've had your big sad about it, not working out and never working out with this woman. Folks, when you let someone go, the problem with it's not you, it's me. My mom has breast cancer. I'm so busy at work right now. My class load is crushing me or I'm not over something in my past that I need to get work through and get past before I'm fit to date anyone. It's the person that you're dumping may then go, I'm just going to wait it out. You're going to graduate in 18 months. Your mother's going to get better. Your mother's going to die. You're going to go get therapy and get help with this. So I am going to sit here and wait that out. And someone that you may never want to see again could be out there pining for you, biding their time, counting the days until you've graduated or mom gets better or your workload lessons or your therapy kicks into gear. If you're really not interested in someone, if you're doing the dumping and you're not interested in getting back together with them ever again, You have to make that clear. You have to dump them with some finality. You have to err on the side of not giving someone false hopes about a future with you that is not possible. And when you've been dumped, even if a future is possible, you have to act like it's not possible. You have to get the fuck on with your life, caller. So, have some ice cream, get drunk, talk to your friends, blah, 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 about how sad you are about this wallow for a month and the colossal heartache and heartbreak of it all, and then resolve to shut your fucking mouth, get out of the house, go do things, go do other people, go meet other women, and put enough women in front of you that you might be able to date or might be able to see you with, and that connection you felt, that feeling, that impulse, to go for a, a deeper intimacy with someone, Someone will come along who draws that out of you in the same way that this woman drew that out of you, that thing that was in you to begin with. She didn't put it there. It was there. It still is there. You just need a new girlfriend.
6: Hi, Dan. I have a question, not exactly about sex or dating, but about parenting or dating a parent. I guess I'm really wondering at what point do you call Child Protective Services on your boyfriend and his child's mother the guy i've been dating we've been seeing each other about three or four months i'm a professional nanny i've worked in child care i've been a mandated reporter before and now i'm dating a guy who he and the mother of the child cannot seem to get their shit together <laughs> they have a three-year-old uh they are no longer together my boyfriend and um this Kid's mom, but they still live together and co parent. The apartment where they are raising their kid is deplorable. It is a hoarder kind of hellscape. It is dirty and smells. There's no room for this girl to play or run around or do much of anything. And I have talked to my boyfriend about this extensively how this is a problem. And what is he doing to fix it? And there seems to be a lot of passing the buck about, well, the mom doesn't work. So this is her responsibility. Or he he says, oh, well, I've talked to you know, the mom about this, but she doesn't do anything about it. At what point do I say enough is enough and report them to some kind of authority? I'm starting to worry about the safety and well-being of, of this kid. I'm not in her life on a day to day basis, but I see her you know once a week a couple times a week this is really i I'm, I'm heartsick over this
7: um, I'm, i don't know what to do
3: call c p s child protective services in your area call them now don't wait till after the fire Don't wait till after a pile of crap in the hoarder apartment tumbles over and crushes this kid this three year old kid don't wait till that kid gets tetanus or call now. You can call CPS anonymously. You don't have to give them your name. You don't have to let them know you're reporting your boyfriend, but you do have to, and I'm sure you feel obligated to as someone who formerly was a mandated reporter, you have to phone this in. You do have to alert the authorities to the danger that this child is in. Your affections for your boyfriend of just a few months notwithstanding, you have to act in the best interests of this vulnerable, helpless child. And I think you should push back hard when you're with your boyfriend. You have to tell him you called CPS, but when the shit hits the van when CPS shows up, you need to push back hard against your boyfriend's argument that it's the wife's responsibility solely to clean up the house because he works and she doesn't. Obviously, the wife has, if she is a hoarder and this place is as filthy and disgusting and crowded as you say, the wife has some mental illness. And if he isn't then stepping up to protect his child, which would include getting her the fuck out of there. He's failing as a parent himself. She's failing as a parent and maybe her failure is tied to a mental illness that she has no control over and needs help addressing. But if he isn't suffering from a mental illness and he's just allowing this to go on, choosing the path of least resistance, he may arguably be a worse parent than this kid's mother is. You've got to call CPS. He's got to step up the fuck up. And after you call CPS and after you tell him to step the fuck up, you need to ask yourself why you're dating this guy. It's only been a few months. If I was dating someone and I saw them actively or passively endangering a child, I wouldn't feel safe being that person's romantic partner. There are times in your life when you're with someone where you are vulnerable to them, where you're going to be sick or you're going to be in danger of, of some sort. And you're going to need your partner to step up and care for you and be responsible for your physical and emotional safety and well being. And someone who is failing a three-year-old child in the way that this guy is failing this three-year-old child is not someone who's going to come through for his future wife or girlfriend. He's already failing his ex-wife if indeed she's his ex yet. So you need to ask yourself after you make that call, after you have words with him, why you're in this relationship, whether you want to stay in this relationship and what conditions you're going to impose on him for you to stay in this relationship. If that's the choice you make.
1: Hey Dan, I've noticed lately that the acronym has gotten much longer coming out of your mouth the last few weeks, LGBTQ blah, 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 long parade of letters there. And I've noticed this online for a while now too. And I'm not sure if you mean it sarcastically or not, but it kind of begs the question in my mind if it's not time for a new term, a simple one-word term that's all-inclusive, that describes everybody who's not, what, straight, cis, male, gender-binary Um, Yeah, I am fully down with inclusion. Absolutely, let's include everybody. But it just seems like a 17-letter acronym is, is getting kind of tedious, isn't it? So, I don't know, maybe time for some suggestions from your listeners or has someone already come up with a new term and we just aren't using it yet? Because, yeah, it just seems a little absurd, doesn't it?
3: Am I being sarcastic when I rattle off LGBTQAI2S? N-B-L-F-Q again, I again, A again? No! No, of course not. I'm not being sarcastic at all. I'm just trying to be inclusive. But this term that you seek, it's already out there. It's actually in the acronym. It's one of the two Qs in LGBTQIA, T-S-N-B-L-F-Q-I-A. It's one of the Qs. Queer. Queer. Queer is everybody who's not straight. And queer, I like to say, is genus and something else is species. You are homo sapien genus species genus homo species i mean genus queer in my case it's species gay i am queer gay queer tells you a big broad thing but not a specific thing gay or bi or trans or whatever else it tells you a little bit more specifically what kind of queer you are so the word you seek the term you want not only already exists but it's already embedded in the acronym that annoys you so much
6: hi dan long-term listeners love the show Uh, Question for you. So, my loving, kind, and supportive partner is a voyeur. He specifically enjoys watching unsuspecting people change in lockers and changing rooms. He's floated the idea of me taking videos to help him scratch this itch. I'm not comfortable doing this for two reasons. One, it's illegal. And two, I believe it victimizes innocent people, which I understand is part of the rush. This is really his only kink. Is
3: there any legal way I can help him satisfy this need? All right. Uh, To address your question quickly and to put aside, no, no, don't do this for your loving, kind, supportive creep of a boyfriend. What he's doing, what he's asking you to do is not okay. The world provides us with plenty of opportunities to see hot people out in the world moving through it uh, as we live our lives, and it is perfectly okay to... Check people out so long as you don't unnerve people and make them uncomfortable and come across as a fallacious creeper, making them feel threatened, you don't follow them. What your boyfriend is into, what he's asking you to do is to spy on people, to carry video cameras, presumably into locker rooms that he doesn't have access to, uh, and surreptitiously take videotapes of people when they have a reasonable expectation of privacy, that they're not being fucking videotaped. That is a crime and that he's asking you to commit a crime. Or his dick is a bad sign, is kind of the reddest of red fucking flags. It's the May Day Parade and Bay fucking Jing of red flags. And I would, if I were you, dump this motherfucker before he asked you to do anything else that's crazier. before he got arrested himself for doing something crazy and something that invades someone else's privacy and something that is unfair to them. I have never been creeped on in this way. I have never been the victim of a peeping Tom. No one's ever surreptitiously tried to take my pictures in a locker room, but it has happened to Nancy Hartooney and the producer of the podcast. Happened to me. Happened to you. I'm
0: here. Hi, everybody.
3: Welcome. I always love it when you jump on a microphone when you've got something to say. <laughs> instead of just yelling at me when the mics are off.
0: Yeah. Uh. uh when I was in college, uh, I caught a peeping Tom watching me, and it was really upsetting. I mean I, I could see how being a peeping Tom, you would think that it's something of a victimless crime, especially if you don't get caught. But if you do get caught that it that was really upsetting to me, and I didn't feel safe in my own goddamn home, and I had to you know block my windows who wants to who wants to shut off a window? Right so yeah it's not cool,
3: and you so you felt violated because you were being scoped or inspected in this place where you had a reasonable expectation of privacy, your own fucking apartment,
0: yeah, and, and that's part of the thrill for him,
3: right. The violation is intrinsic to this kind of voyeurism, to this kind of thrill, you know, if you are a voyeur and you get off on watching people who are disrobing or having sex, there are swingers clubs for you out there, there are sex parties and sex clubs and crazy dance parties where you will see plenty of that by people who are doing that knowing that they're going to be checked out and they're going to be looked at. It's part of the thrill for them. But if what your boyfriend is into is the upskirt photography or the spying on women in places and at times where they don't expect to be spied on or viewed or scoped, it's the violation that turns him on.
0: Right. And, I, I, is there a way that we can think about this, it, it, the way that we think about pedophiles, right? Like somebody who's saddled with an unethical desire. Somebody that cannot
3: be realized.
0: Or must not be realized. Right. So then... You know, if you want to stick with this guy, like your job is to help him to figure out a way for him to scratch that itch without actually invite invading somebody's To, to channel
3: this in a consensual, to dig a channel that that that, that he could pour his desires into that just funnels it all off into the into a consensual, not just direction, but a consensual consenting place. And what would that look like?
0: Can you go to a space? Can you scope out spaces where? you can go and take your clothes off and he can be watching and you can pretend it's role-playing and pretend that he's not there. Would that do it for him?
3: Mm -hmm. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. It sounds like this guy wants to see lots of other women (laughs) yeah, and women he doesn't know and women who don't know that he's watching them and women that don't know that he now possesses in these videos kind of a piece of them and controls it and has this power over them because he possesses these videos that, you made for him if you are stupid enough to make these videos and commit these crimes on his behalf. And he can always then and you don't know what how much darker his desires get or his interests get. What if these videos that you created for him to help him scratch his itch because he's such a pathetic needy person. He needs help from you scratching this. What if he starts uploading them to the internet? These videos that you made. And it's not just about seeing women but also about exposing women to others who would like to see them. At these times and in these places where the viewing of them and certainly the creation of this video is a violation of their privacy and their selves and their bodies and their autonomy around choosing when and who gets to see me like this, disrobed, which is what people do in locker rooms.
0: And think of your future self. If you're an accomplice to this guy and then later on you inevitably break up with him, you get to think back upon your life and think about that you did that. And
3: he had that to hold over your head you don't want to do that what if he all unbeknownst to you is uploading these videos to the internet has a revenge porny kind of website and gets fucking arrested and then implicates you you who are so nice to help him scratch this innocent little bitch, wind up charged with uh revenge porn you are going to jail you are going to jail <laughs> we took you to the worst place <laughs> well you'll have no privacy <laughs>
0: You can have compassion for him, but you must not be an accomplice.
3: And when he says this is an itch he needs to scratch, the response is, how can you scratch this itch ethically, which requires consensuality? It has to be consensual. And what you're asking me to do is to violate other people, to videotape them for you without their consent, and that I am unwilling to do. And if you ask again, I will break the fuck up with you.
0: And you can be a force for good. Like, if you can actually find a way for him to be happy without violating people, then you will have made, you'll have repaired the world. You'll have made the world a better place.
3: Fewer violated people in the world, thanks to you.
8: Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something bi-female. A female friend and I, we're, we're both kind of in like monogamish, cackledish kind of relationships. Um, and we were talking today and we realized that the one thing that bugs both of us about it is that it seems like our guys always have sort of like a script that they want us to follow. Like you're going to fuck that guy. He's going to do this to you then you're going to do that to him, et cetera, et cetera, which is totally hot to talk about. But to both of us, it almost feels like a scripted porno or like basically the opposite of spontaneous, you know, it kind of makes us feel like prostitutes that we're supposed to go in and do exactly this. And it's kind of about what they want. Um, Almost like about control and, I mean, I'm all for a bit of BDSM play and control and that kind of thing, too. But here's my question. Is this part of the cuckolding fetish? Um, sort of when we're sent out to play, like, but we have to adhere to this, this script. Is this unhealthy and kind of controlling? Or should we just calm our tits and go with it? Um, anyway, we'd love to know your thoughts. Thanks.
3: In regular old BDSM, people talk about the pushy bottom, the person who is being submissive But is kind of subtly barking orders at the top, letting them know exactly what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want it done to them. And those pushy bottoms get very annoyed or upset if the top doesn't follow their script, to the letter. The same thing plays out. You see the same kind of pushy bottoms in cuckolding. The cuckold, theoretically, in a cuckold relationship, is the powerless one is the one being cheated on, is the one being degraded and humiliated. But invariably, the person that gets a couple into cuckolding is the cuckold. It is their idea. They have fantasies, uh, very often specific, detailed, annotated, footnoted fantasies about what these scenarios are going to look like and why they turn them on. And they have masturbated about these things for years and years and years and created in their imaginations these erotic scripts. And then when they finally have a partner who's interested in cuckolding too, uh, or becomes interested in it over time which is usually the trajectory guy says to his wife or his girlfriend that he is cuckolding is something that he wants to explore and she says no and shuts it down but a, a seed is planted and a few years later they revisit it and then you have a cuckold couple anyway the cuckold the bottom in this they've been thinking about it for a very long time they have like you said a script and often the bottom can be the controlling one in that relationship and we like to say in BDSM land that the bottom is in charge the bottom can withdraw their consent and the scene ends. But at some point in the cuckold relationship, the cuckold has to empower their partner to have sex the way they would like to have sex with other people. If they're going to do this for their entertainment, I think what you say to your boyfriends or husbands is your cuckold fantasies and your scripts really hot, really fun to talk about while we're fucking really great material. And it gives me a lot of ideas, but, but When I'm with someone, I have to respond in the moment to what is happening. That There has to be room for me to deviate from your script. I'm not going to be able to necessarily hit these marks. Like if you have this specific fantasy about me getting with this guy and blowing him, what if I get with this guy and he doesn't like blowjobs or I don't like the way his crotch smells? I'm not going to go and do that just because it was in your script. I'm going to pivot. I'm going to improvise. I'm going to do something else. And we may get carried away. And you have to allow me with this other person to enjoy this other person, not just be hitting marks for you. And that's where the submission comes in. That's where the degradation or cuckolding or humiliation comes in. That's where it gets a little real. And that can be scary for a sub or a bottom in any sort of power exchange relationship because they are ceding control. That's the bungee jump aspect of it. And people have an easier time ceding control and doing that bungee jump and not wanting to script every moment of a scene when they're with somebody that they love and trust, someone who's hit the marks for them in the past. When we talk about baby steps with kink, what we're talking about is kind of writing a script. We're going to do this, this, and this, and nothing but this, this, and this, and we're going to demonstrate to each other that we can be trusted, that we're safe doing these things. And the more you do that, the more you demonstrate to each other you're safe the looser people get about those scripts. And then people begin to improvise a bit because they know each other well enough to know what works and what's a turn on. If you've been with these guys long enough to know what works for them and you've baby stepped your way through some cuckolding scenes with others that worked for everybody, you know kind of what works. And if you fantasized aloud often enough, you know what turns them on. So you can go off script. Tell them you're going to potentially go off script but you're going to go on to some other aspect of some other script that you've heard come out of their mouth at some other times, or you're going to help them write a new script because you have agency here because you aren't a puppet because he's not an animator drawing his fantasy on a piece of paper. He's living this fantasy with someone else, with you and these other guys and your feelings and your desires and your needs and your scripts have to come into play as well. So it's fine for them to have these scripts. It's fine for them to have these specific annotated footnoted fantasies that they share with you. And it's understandable that giving up control is scary. And people often want to be in control of the process of giving up control, which is a paradox. But there it is. But at a certain point, he has to trust you. He has to empower you to be the girlfriend or the wife that's the right one for him. Who's a little freer than he is. And you should tell him you will take his scripts to heart, but you will have to have the freedom to improvise on and around them.
6: Hi, Dan. This is a 29-year-old female from the Midwest. I have a dilemma with one of my friends. I introduced she and her husband a few years ago, and about six months ago, she told me that they had started cuckolding. I had a lot of questions at the time, um, mostly about, you know, moral and ethical implications for her relationship, and she answered all of my questions and kind of brushed my concerns off as nothing could touch the connection between she and her husband and that she didn't think that this dynamic would change for them. A few months after that, she came back to me and told me that she had just started cheating on her husband and wasn't going to tell him about it. Then the guy she was cheating with showed up to the restaurant where we were meeting. And that was a little hard for me to digest. I later let her know, um, that I wasn't signing off on it and I didn't support the behavior. I still wanted to support her, but I was really worried about her, really concerned for her, really worried about her relationship. I felt like she had kind of misled me to think that she wasn't going to do this, that this wasn't going to affect her relationship with her husband. Um, she was really taken aback. And initially wasn't upset, but didn't talk to me for a couple of weeks after that. When she finally did respond, she came back very angry and said some really hurtful things. And I just reaffirmed to her that I didn't feel like I had come from a place of wanting to hurt her. And I felt like that's what she was doing. She was striking out, you know, striking out against me. So I've reached out to her a couple of times since then just to say, hey, I'm still here. I still care about you. I'd still like to be, you know, involved in your life. And she hasn't responded at all. And at this point, I just don't really know what to do. Any advice would be helpful. Thanks.
3: So I have a couple of questions about what your friend told you about her relationship with her husband and how their cuckolding agreement works or was supposed to work. But first, I want you to tell me what your ethical or moral problems are with cuckolding or what you think the ethical or moral implications of it might be. The issues you first raised.
6: Well, I didn't really have any problems with it. I just had a lot of questions about it. It was the first I'd really, you know, been introduced to it on a, like, personal level with somebody that I knew Mm -hmm. when she was talking to me about it. Um, So I just kind of asked about, like, what, you know, she was worried about her relationship, if she, you know, had an agreement with her husband and how he really felt about it. And she said they were very open and um, honest with each other about it. And so
3: I was happy for her. Did, Did she say who instigated the conversation about cuckolding? Because cuckolding isn't just an open relationship. It's an open relationship and something else.
6: Yeah. I mean, she put it out to me as it was a fantasy that she wanted to fulfill for her husband. She was very into um, fulfilling her partner's fantasy.
3: And it was her husband's fantasy for her to cheat on him with other men.
6: This is what, yeah. As long as she was aware, he was aware of it and then he wanted to hear about it and enjoy it with her
2: Mm -hmm.
3: through that
6: way. And then they would have sex and.
3: But, but you've never, it which, is, about it. which is the typical cuckold trajectory. Like the guy, it's the guy's <laughs> fantasy. He shares it with the wife or girlfriend. Most wives and girlfriends don't have a, 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 as positive a reaction initially as your friend did. Uh, and then they, she fucks other people. She tells them about it. They fuck and talk about it. And it works for him. Uh, some mm-hmm. theorize that what these guys, these cuckolds are doing is harnessing what's called sperm competition syndrome. The awareness that your partner has been with someone else will inspire you to have a more powerful, more intense, more voluminous orgasm to flood out the competitor's sperm. Sperm competition syndrome. Now, another question for you: Were you ever able to talk about this with the husband, your friend that you introduced this woman to?
6: No, he was a he was a coworker prior to introducing them, um, so we weren't really close. But we have spent quite a bit of time. You know, me and my boyfriend and her and her husband together since they got married. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I never talked to him about it. And when she told me that she was cheating on him and wasn't going to tell him about it, that was one of the things that I told her. I said, I feel like now I'm kind of in a weird position with him. Um,
3: yeah, because you're implicated she, you in, know, and even complicit in uh, an infidelity, in cheating, not right. not a kinky sex play that involves, you know, fake cheating.
6: But she told me that it was really none of my business, and my connection was with her husband was only through her.
3: Uh-huh. So w- one more point about cuckolding to run this to ground. Sometimes people in cuckold relationships, sometimes the cuckold will give their partner permission to cheat on them without telling them right away that they can have affairs, that they can lie and deceive, and then these things, these secrets will come out later and be shared in an erotic context. That, she, that he will find mm-hmm. out three months from now that she fucked that dude in the hotel while they are on vacation because she'll tell him during sex it'll be plowed into dirty talk and so in some cuckold relationships there doesn't have to be instantaneous disclosure and some cuckolds do borrow from some people in open relationships with a little don't ask don't tell where they will allow their partner to have complete freedom including the freedom to not be completely open about everything that they're doing because that turns them mm-hmm. on but you don't well, think that's the she, case that wasn't
6: here. something that well, but yeah, that wasn't something that she told me about anyway, and when she came to me and told me that she was cheating, I she seemed very like a little upset about it. I mean, she was excited by the prospect of it, but also um upset that it was going on.
3: That she was upset that she was cheating? And yet she introduced you to the uh, guy she's cheating with?
6: Yeah. Yeah, she was she was upset and kind of I mean, to me she seemed very lost. She denies feeling that way, but she just seemed kind of not herself and was upset about it and telling me she didn't know what she would do about it and that she would never tell Ian, uh, tell her husband. And
3: What is it about fucking this guy that she can't tell her husband about if she's told him about fucking other guys? That there's a and relationship? I don't know.
6: I think so. I think that there was an emotional connection that she had with him. She said it was just something different that she didn't expect to happen.
3: I think you were right to confront your friend. I think you should encourage your friend to tell her husband about this. This is something that a lot of people in cuckold relationships eventually have to face up to is that the person doing the cheating may sometimes catch feelings for someone or see them regularly or start to see them regularly or more than once in violation of their agreement. And that's something that the couple has to hash out. And it's something that her husband might sign off on. Not something that when he initiated this stuff that he thought he would be comfortable with, it was a limit and she's violated it and she should come clean And then have a conversation about what now?
6: Uh, When I had initially asked her about it, I suggested her that she tell her husband and that he would probably sign off on it and be okay with it. And she just absolutely vetoed that idea.
3: Yeah, I think you've done all you can do. You've told her to come clean. You've told her to confess to your husband. You told her you don't want to be complicit or implicated in the infidelity. And you've reached out to her. She's angry at you. That'll pass. You've reached out to her to let her know that you want your friendship to continue. And eventually she's going to do the right thing because she chooses to do the right thing or she's going to get caught. And then then we'll see what happens with this marriage. It is possible if you're in a cuckold relationship to cheat on your cuckold. It is possible to betray or violate them by having sex with someone else in a way that wasn't consented to, that wasn't a part of the agreement or the deal, that You hammer it out or they hammer it out. And when the shit hits the fan, because she goes and takes your advice, you know, after a while and goes and opens up to her husband about where she's at right now and what she's doing and who and how often, or if she gets caught and it all comes tumbling out and the shit hits the fan, she will circle back to you because you will have been right. You will, you would have, you will have been right. She might have to come back to you and eat a little crow and say, I should have listened to you, but you can't force that (laughs) process that this is going to have to play out. She told you what was going on with her. You told her why you had a problem with that, why you didn't want to meet the guy she's cheating on her husband, your friend with. And now you're going to be estranged for a while. And you just have to allow that to play out.
6: Should I keep reaching out to her and offering support? I've done that a couple of times and I wish her a happy birthday, but I just haven't talked to her at all. She hasn't responded in any way.
3: Yeah, I think you. every once in a while you should reach out to her. Just let her know. No judgment. And I'm here for you and hope our friendship revives at some point. Okay. Good luck.
6: Well, thanks for calling back. I appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Bye.
9: Hi, Dan. I am a straight 52-year-old single woman I'm living on the East Coast. I have a history of childhood, sexual abuse, and um, anxiety, depression, PTSD. I developed a drinking problem later in life in my 30s and drank for eight years and have been sober for about five and a half years. I've done a lot of work on myself. I've had a lot of therapy. Um, I've been in recovery. And due to my past history, I really just avoided any kind of relationships. I really shut down the few Dates that I would have, they just, you know, were with people who weren't very kind to me. So I've never had a long term relationship. I'm a virgin and um, I do, you know, want to have that in my life, have a relationship. Um, But I am very anxious um, because I don't really have any skills. And to be my age, dating men my age. And, you know, you, of course, up front, you can't tell them your history and why you don't have experiences and knowledge. I feel like this is my chance to finally um, have, uh, you know, a fulfilling relationship. But I I need to begin. And I'm very nervous about whether somebody's going to think I'm weird, that I don't have any experience. I'm like a teenager in a middle-aged woman's body. So any kind of help you can give to sort of start things off, is this completely weird and men will be turned off by it. Um, I could really use some advice. Thanks.
3: Will men be turned off by the fact that you are 52 years old and inexperienced and a virgin? Some, yes. And you should be honest about being a virgin and about being inexperienced because those men Men who would be turned off by that aren't men you're going to want to be in bed with. They're going to be impatient and unkind and judgy and shitty. And so your inexperience driving those men away is good. That's something positive about your inexperience. It's going to drive people away that you would not want to be in bed with the first time you're in bed with someone. You're a teenager in a 52-year-old woman's body. You regard that as the reason why you'll never find somebody that that would, that's why no one would ever be interested in you. That's actually why some men might be interested in you, not because they have creepy virginity fetishes, but because they may be similarly situated. I got a question at Savage Love recently from a guy who's a 30 year old virgin who had a traumatic childhood and was very inexperienced. And I told him, I'm just going to read a little bit from the column. You're not alone. Okay. You're alone, but you're not alone, alone, meaning There are women and men out there who feel just as paralyzed as you do because they're 30-year-old or older virgins, because they're not conventionally attractive, because their first or only sexual experiences were just as humiliating, because they had traumatic childhoods and bare emotional scars. And I said to this reader, you want a woman to come into your life who is patient and accepting and kind and willing to look past your disability and your inexperience and your history. Be patient, accepting, kind, and similarly willing. Put yourself out there as the person that you are. 52 years old, traumatic life history that is behind you now. And you're on top of and inexperienced. And you will attract men who may be similarly situated, who may be as inexperienced, as nervous about being judged or inept as you are. And you two can set that aside. If you're with someone who is also a 50 year old virgin and those guys are out there, that doesn't have to be the focus. You are both. If you're with someone who is, a 50 year old or a 45 year old male virgin and i hear from those guys all the time inexperience becomes a non issue not something that divides you but something actually that unites you and it allow you both to be sensitive to each other around that very issue that you're worried about being judged about so it's not too late for you put yourself out there get out there in the world move through the world go places do things is my advice for people on so many topics, go places, do things. Even if you never meet anybody, if you're going places and doing things, which ups your chances of meeting someone, you will have a rich and rewarding and fulfilling life. Whether or not you're alone, you're less likely to be alone. If you're out there in the world, moving through the world, not just moving through your computer, not just moving from screen to screen, but out there moving through the world and engaged and active. So get out there and don't be embarrassed or, and don't be shy about your inexperience, about the person that you are. Cause you want to be with someone who wants to be with you and you are 52 years old. You sound like you have a really high emotional IQ. You sound really intelligent. You sound really smart and you are inexperienced and you want someone who wants you right where you are right now. And that guy's out there.
10: Hi Dan. Uh, I'm a 41 year old, disgendered uh, straight male from a The suburbs of a big city on the East Coast. And my wife and I of eight years have recently uh, opened our relationship up and it's mostly going great, though there have been some ups and downs. But the good part of that is it's always presented us an opportunity to talk through some of the underlying difficulties we've had in our relationship. One of the things she has become interested in is dominant Uh, being a sub and on sub play. And this was something that she had mentioned wanting to do in our relationship. And it never really became part of our relationship as our sex life had become a little bit stagnant. And she wasn't really fully uh, open to sex with me at times. And I wasn't really uh, turned on by her uh, at, at certain moments in our relationship because of that stagnance. But Uh, Our open relationships has really sort of blown the doors wide open and we're totally hot for each other again. Sex has been great. The conversations have been great. But this is something I'm supportive of her and she has found somebody on OKCupid who's on the other coast um, and um, she's beginning to chat with him and she had a really good phone conversation with him last night and he mentioned something called subspace, which is something I've never heard on your show. Um, And when I went to... To read about it, it really just raised some alarm bells for me because a whole part of subspace sounds like it's um, a sort of a disembodied experience in which the sub loses, uh, to some degree, agency and the ability to use a safe word. And um, everything I've ever heard on your show indicates that that maintaining agency and the ability to use, use a safe word is of paramount importance in terms of emotional and physical safety. And so I guess I have two questions. One is just about the subspace, whether that's something that um, is in the Dom sub community that is a respected and safe way to play um, and whether there's some way in which she should protect herself. And and really sort of the second is any advice on sort of taking our relationship and making this potentially advanced kink work for us Together and then, hopefully, if we take baby steps, make it work for her uh, alone.
3: Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Molina Williams Haas, executive slave and muse, fat fetish model, cupcake bitch, and co-author of Playing Well with Others: Your Field Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities. Hey, Molina, thank you so much. It's always great to have you.
11: Thank you, Mr. Savage. So lovely to be here.
3: Subspace, is it bullshit?
11: You know, it's funny because I, I don't know what I expected this question to be when you let me know that there was a subject space question, and then I literally laughed and had to write myself on my couch because <laughs> of the fact that it was presented in this way that is so epic and so monumental, mm-hmm. when there's so much more nuance to it and so much more variation. So to start off, yes, it is a thing, and it is something that some people can experience, But uh, for those who might not know, what subspace is, is the idea that there is some sort of altered psychological, physiological, emotional state that people reach during kinky sex. It can be BDSM, it can be submission, it can be something having to do with being spanked or being whipped or being flogged, but it can also just be a result of submission and service itself. Mm -hmm. If you think about the fact that when people run, they talk about a runner's high, that endorphin rush, it's very similar to that. The mind is capable of producing some really amazing drugs and sex and sexual kink and fetishes and that sort of fetishism can dump those into your system. So it's not as though you go into some zombie state where you're suddenly able to be controlled and you lose your voice and your entire agency. It can be that, but that's a very extreme state. Mm -hmm. And that is not standard. That's not typical. That's not usual. Um, So there's a lot of variation
3: in there. And what I've heard is that it's a state that people will enter when they're with a DOM that they're experienced with and have total trust in. It's not just throw a sub in a room with a DOM and the sub's going to automatically enter subspace when the DOM is an unknown quantity and may or may not be a good or responsible DOM that... It, it, yeah. It's not like yeah. someone hypnotizes you or you turn into a sex zombie and, no. you, have an agency <laughs> and you can't deploy your safe word. That's not yeah. what subspace yeah. is. Although I found a couple of definitions of subspace online that made it sound like it's exactly what this panicked husband thinks it is. That his wife is going to meet up with this dom and then he's going to be able to do whatever he wants with her because she won't be able to use her safe word because subspace. Right. Yeah. The
11: thing is that while that can happen, And while certainly there are people who are very susceptible, you know, there are people who are susceptible to hypnosis, there are people who are susceptible to religious cults, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There are folks who are more flexible in that control. However, generally, people are more cautious when they're first playing with someone. Generally, they are not going to engage in activities that might trigger that profound response. Can the profound response be triggered without you expecting it or knowing it? Yes, it can. But I can say anecdotally, that is a, a low risk what I encourage people to do when they are playing, if they are concerned that they might lose control, that they might lose their safe word is that when you're jumping out of the gate, you don't have to have the entire Sunday with bananas and nuts and cherries and whipped cream and three scoops. You can start with one small serving of vanilla and (laughs) experiment and play with it that, that way. You know, if you're meeting someone new, especially start small, start, start rational. And if you do start to feel yourself slipping away, uh, Call it a timeout, you know, call a yellow. The many people use safe words green, yellow, and red. Green meaning keep going, it's awesome. Yellow meaning hold on the chicken. Red meaning stop. Um, the experiences that I have had with subspace that have been very intense
2: mm-hmm.
11: are ones where I did see something coming, something didn't feel right. And one or two times in my life I have ignored that red flag. I feel that's part of a learning experience. And then you go, wow, I should have paid more attention to my gut instinct. So I let people know. Pay attention to the gut instinct and do make sure that you can utilize your safe word and that you are in touch with the other person. And there's also the responsibility of the people, of the person who's who's the top in this situation, is that before you play, set up a way to check in. Mm -hmm. And if you make eye contact with that person and they seem spacey, they don't seem lucid, they're unable to make solid eye contact with you, then stop the scene. And check in and see where they're at because generally this sort of stuff doesn't come like a thunderbolt out of the blue.
3: And let's talk for a second about bad doms. That there are <laughs> shitty, there are shitty tops out there who will tell subs that you're not a real sub if you can't enter into subspace. That or, or you know if you can't be completely submissive. There are shitty doms out there who say you're a bad sub yeah. if you want a safe word or use a safe word. You're not really committed to this DS dynamic if you're not instantly entering this helpless subspace where you have no agency, you have no control, you couldn't use the safe word, even yeah. if you agreed to one. And if that's what this mm-hmm. guy is saying to the dude's wife, the caller's wife, run. Yeah. It,
11: it's, I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that, I, if that's what he was saying, then absolutely 100%. But a lot of people will use this sort of as an enticement and as a goal. Mm-hmm. And while that's not totally sociopathic, it is a little bit manipulative because then you feel as though you have something to achieve. And I'll tell you honestly, I've had literally hundreds of scenes in my life where there was no subspace, and I would rank them among the top experiences that I've had because I because I was lucid, because I was present. Mm-hmm. So subspace, in and of itself, is not the thing you're going for. If it happens, that's great, but no one should ever set a parameter for you that is to uh, that, that level sets for your submission or their dominance by that by that by that matter, you know, as in you're not a good enough slave or I'm not a good enough dominant if I don't make you do this. You know, this is this is the advanced level thing because if this husband and wife are trying this and they're doing kinky stuff and they're having a great time, but she's not getting the subspace. He might get discouraged and feel like, oh, gosh, well, I can't really do this. It Doesn't matter. You know, it's the same way that you can have an amazing sexual experience and not have an orgasm making out is beautiful. You might not come from it, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Does that make
3: sense? Well, yeah, absolutely. But but what percentage do you think of people who do Dom, Subplay, BDSM Play, Kink uh, actually achieve subspace? Because, you know, I, I know a lot of kinksters, and I talk to a Mm -hmm. lot of people about their sex lives and this isn't something that comes up you know people will tell me about their crazy weekend and all the kinky things they did uh, you know and I have you know people BDSM and they'll never say oh and then I entered subspace like I never hear that in casual conversation it almost seems (laughs) it, it almost seems mythical
11: I think it happens, and I I think that probably when people are talking about it, they don't talk about it because it might feel too personal or it might feel like it's too much to go into Mm -hmm. because then you have to explain what it is and then you have to qualify it. I'll say probably about half the people involved in kink at some point, um, and this is just a ballpark rough estimate, will have had that experience where they have felt like they have entered an altered state. Mm-hmm. And I wanna reiterate that that altered state might not be incapacitating and 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 life altering. It might be just you know when you have having like a really good fuck and someone's just like they're they're hitting it, they're hitting it, they're hitting it right, and then suddenly like your eyes roll back in your yeah, head. You're blissed you
3: hardly out, sort of like overwhelmed by you're endorphins and sensations. But that's not necessarily yeah. you a no will or agency. Right. not, not a zombie like you can, said.
11: No, exactly. It can feel like that, though, right? And so I think a lot of folks will misinterpret that. Mm. Now, the the thing that also happens sometimes to people is that they might have some sort of trigger to some sort of flashback or some sort of psychological landmine that they hit that actually incapacitates them. And that's a different thing. You know, it can feel very much like substance, but I would recommend folks if they do have an experience where they completely lose their shit, that they do stop the scene and do address that uh, possibly even with a professional if it's something that feels very scary and very terrifying. But I will say that this idea that suddenly you are unable to say for words, you are unable to control yourself, you are unable to manage that situation is a small percentage of a few very extreme situations. I would say that that's not standard, and I'd say it's very unusual.
3: Molina Williams-Haas, co-author with Lee Harrington of Playing Well With Others, your field guide to discovering, exploring, and navigating the kink and leather and BDSM communities. Thank you so much. And in answer to the caller's last question, how to make this advanced kink work for you as a couple and work for your wife, read Molina and Lee Harrington's book. That's a
2: great place to start.
3: And you should be following Molina on Twitter at Molina. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank
7: you. Lovely. Talk to you soon. Hi, Dan. I have a bit of a funny question, I suppose. So my sister is coming to visit me. She is coming for about a week and a half, and she called ahead of time and was really concerned that she would take my bed and I'd have to sleep on the couch. And she was like, I could send you an air mattress in the mail and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no way, I'm letting you have my bed because that's kind of the way it goes for me. I don't I don't really care about that kind of thing. But funnily enough, I've been hooking up with my neighbor really recently and it would be just as easy for me to go over to his house and sleep over not like that would be necessarily a problem but he is older than me um he's 46 I'm 30 and in the past when my sister like when I was 20 um I was dating a guy who was 40 and I told her and she flipped out she was like what the fuck is wrong with this guy blah 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 like who would do that, who would date a younger girl like this, and then, na, na 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 but at this point, I don't think that would still stand because I'm at my own place, I'm 30, I've been an adult for a while, I can make my own decisions. I'm not necessarily going to take take or heed her warning if she says, like, oh, it's too old for you, but I think what I'm asking or wondering is do I just kind of like suck it up for the week and sleep on the couch? Cause I was going to anyways. And, or do I just say, Hey, listen, like I'm hanging out with my neighbor and you meeting him anyways, cause we're all friends around the neighborhood. We're Probably going to have dinners together and stuff like this. And just be like, uh, oh, you just be easy enough for me to go over to his house. Like, do I even bring up the that subject or I don't know, maybe this is a really dumb question. Maybe I'm just like being really insecure about it. But, uh, she kind of uh, affected me when I was younger, so I think that's probably why I'm, why I'm still like uh, kind of nervous about it. So yeah, what do you think?
3: Stop being afraid of your fucking sister. You're 30 years old. You're dating someone 15, 16 years older. You're dating someone who's 46. That age difference at 30 is not as significant. If when you were 16 years old you were dating someone who was 30, if you've always been into older men, it's understandable why your sister might have concerns. And why she might have expressed them and if she was young herself, maybe she expressed them inelegantly and left you feeling shamed. But now you're 30 years old, you're a capable adult and there is a pattern in your life. You then were attracted to older men, you were still attracted to older men. And now you're not some vulnerable 16-year-old teenager who may be being exploited by someone taking advantage of your naivete and in experience, you're a 30-year-old woman who's got her own apartment and got her shit together. And if you're fucking someone who's 46 and your sister still has a problem with that or shames you about it, then tell your sister to go fuck herself. But I don't think your sister, unless she's crazy and shamey, is going to do that. There's a good reason why if your little sister is dating someone who's much older than she is, you might feel obligated to intervene to at least say something and be motivated by concern. And – You're not going to feel that same concern for your adult sister when she's dating another adult who's 15 years older than she is, which doesn't make a shitload of difference when you're talking about 30 and 45 as opposed to when you're talking about 15 and 30. But it does make a big difference. So go sleep with your neighbor that you're having sex with. Tell your sister that you're going to crash across the street at your fuck buddy's apartment. And if she has a problem with that, then she can get a fucking hotel.
12: Hi, Dan. I am in my mid-40s, live on the West Coast, and am married with a young daughter. My husband and I have a close friend that has been divorced for many years and has raised her children mostly as a single mom. Her kids are now off to college, and we were thrilled when, after watching her go through some not very healthy relationships, she finally found a man that seems to treat her well and that clearly adores her. He has come to our house, and we've hung out with them both, just together and also in groups of, you know, our mutual friends. We both enjoy his company and he seems like a decent person. My husband and I typically both have decent radar for people and he seems to strike us as a genuinely okay guy. So our friend's boyfriend is divorced and while my girlfriend is generally pretty private, she has shared with me that his divorce was rough and included a custody battle. And she says that he would tell her that his ex-wife had a trend of sort of filing false accusations against him. My friend has never been specific about what these allegations are, and I did not press her for details. So fast forward a year, my husband and I are looking for a new house, and my husband does a search on Megan's Law in neighborhoods that we are looking at, and unfortunately, his name and picture pop up. The information was incredibly vague, and I know there are many incidents of people who end up on those lists due to uh, making poor choices when they're young, but then again, there's also clearly people on those lists who are truly predators. At the time, my husband and I discussed whether we should mention this to our friend and we decided we would stick our noses out of their business. She may very well already know this and letting her know that we know might make them feel uncomfortable. We never leave our daughter alone with him, but whenever we have observed him around her or any other children, nothing ever seems unusual in his behavior. But maybe we had a few get-togethers with friends and their children and nothing ever does seem strange. So I guess the question is just like, Now that this has been going on for a year, we get together with more children. I'm just doubting whether we did the right thing. Are we doing something wrong by not mentioning it to either them and at least opening up the discussion so they can address what the story is? Or are we doing something wrong by not letting our other friends know who do have children? Um, I suspect this may be one of those instances where the answer seems really clear to you, but on our end, it just seems kind of muddied. And I would love to hear your input
3: people wind up on sex offender registries for so many stupid reasons that it kind of undermines the utility of sex offender registries or their value. People are on sex offender registries because they sexted dirty pictures of themselves to their boyfriends or girlfriends and they got caught. People are on sex offender registries for seeing a sex worker, for public urination, for flashing their breasts at a crowd. There are on sex offender registries People who, when they were 17 years old, had sex with their 15-year-old boyfriend or girlfriend and wound up on sex offender registries for the rest of their lives. So just because you found someone on a sex offender registry doesn't mean that they did or are guilty of having done the thing that leaps to mind when we hear that someone's on a sex offender registry, which is someone raped a child. That's what we think when we hear sex offender registry. Child rapist, a list of your local child rapists and it ain't necessarily so but you know what you know and it is disturbing to find someone on a sex offender registry particularly someone who's around your kids and i think you won't rest easy until you run this to ground you know what you know and you can't pretend not to know it and he knows he's on the sex offender registry and so i think you have a conversation with him and your friend who's dating him where you say Everything we've gotten to know about you is positive. We like you. We think you're a good person. We stumbled over this. We weren't searching your name. We weren't Googling you. We were looking at neighborhoods we're thinking about moving to, and we stumbled over this. And we'd like to know as much as you'd like to tell us. And that's going to be an awkward conversation. And maybe he was falsely reported by his ex-wife and something stuck, or maybe that's his excuse or his rationalization but you should ask for more information and how he comports himself during that conversation. will convey to you a lot of important information. Now, if he actually did commit a sex crime, recidivism rates, the the likelihood that someone who's committed a crime is going to commit that same crime are very low, lowest actually for sex offenders than for any other category of crook or criminal or asshole in the world. Low for sex offenders, which is remarkable. You know, we think we need the sex offender registries because sex offenders are, or people who found guilty of a sex crime are drooling monsters who can't control themselves. And if they ever get out are just going to run through the streets, raping everybody. And the data does not bear that out. So even if what is in his past is something that should legitimately land someone on a sex offender registry and is very disturbing, then you need to have a conversation about the help he's gotten in that doesn't necessarily mean that he is now a danger to your kids. As for your friends who also have children who are in this couple's orbit, in his orbit, you have to weigh what you would want to be told if the shoe were on the other foot. If somebody you knew found this out about a person that your kid was hanging out with or the person who had access to your child, would you want to be told? And you have to weigh that against what you learn when you have this awkward conversation with your friend and her boyfriend about, why his name is on a sex offender registry and if it's a big fat nothing that landed him on a sex offender registry it was public urination if it's because he saw a sex worker and that's what his wife reported to the police i don't think you should tell your friends because he doesn't pose a risk to their children and it's so stigmatizing to be on the sex offender registry particularly if you're on it for a bullshit reason that you shouldn't share that information. But if he's on that sex offender registry because he actually harmed a child, even recognizing that recidivism rates when it comes to sex crimes are very lowest, low, 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 that is something that I would want to be told if a friend knew that about an adult in my kid's orbit. And I would feel obligated myself to share that information along with the information about sex offender registries being abused, along with the information about People who've committed sex crimes have low recidivism rates. I would share that information as well, but I would share that information. I would feel morally obligated to share that information.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 561 and the caller with the borderline sister. I keep hearing you say that there's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can do, but there actually is something he can do. And the onus is entirely on him as the person, as the member of the couple with the toxic family member, it's entirely up to him to protect himself and his wife and everyone else from the toxic person. He's the one who's brought the toxic person into the relationship, so it's his job to take the toxic person out and not bother his wife, and not mess with his marriage. So what he can do, what he should do is go no contact with his sister put up that firm boundary and then work with his wife to repair the damage that his sister's done because it's his family. So he should do something and there is something that he can do.
14: Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment on episode 561 for the woman who was in an open relationship and talking to a guy who was a former cop who was violent against um, a man in handcuffs. Uh, I hope it's not too late, but I want her to know that you don't owe him an explanation. You absolutely do not want to risk retribution or any violence against yourself, especially with an ex cop who has a lot of cop friends, probably who can easily find you. You don't owe it to him. Fuck this guy. He's probably gone through this before. He can read between the lines of why you stopped talking to him. If he doesn't care, if he doesn't want to know why, why? Uh, fuck them. Not your problem. Don't risk violence against yourself or this guy getting pissed. Women have to deal with this all the time, and it's just not worth it. Not your responsibility.
6: Good luck. Hi, this is a comment. I'm calling about the father in episode 561 whose 10-year-old son had come out as gay. And I just wanted to say that it's a blessing to have a gay person in your family. I'm straight, and I have an identical twin sister who's gay. And The fact that she's not another hetero in our family has added to my life and actually my brother's and my parents' lives so much. And I actually feel honored to be the identical twin of a lesbian because now it makes me see really clearly that my straight white wasp privilege and question it. And it also opened up my mind in terms of what relationships could be see, my sister inspired me to question my typical heterosexual habit of assuming that monogamy is the only way to go because she crafted her love relationships from scratch. She decided with her partners what parameters they would abide by in terms of fidelity instead of just blindly following what society expects like I did. So, Dad, you are so lucky to have a gay son. If that indeed is what he turns out to be, you will find that your world will open up and your heart will become even bigger.
3: And we're gonna leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Two oh six. Quick reminder: we are sending ITMFA lapel pins, impeach the motherfucker already, lapel pins, to every member of Congress, every house rep, every senator. If you'd like to send ITMFA lapel pins to your congressman or your senators and give them the message that you want that motherfucker impeached already, go to ITMFA.org or impeach the motherfucker already.com. Click on the link, send a note to your representative and your senators, send them a couple of pins, send them a message, and help us raise money for. Or Planned Parenthood, the International Refugee Assistance Project, and the American Civil Liberties Union in the process of itmfa.org. Be sure to read Savage Love, my weekly advice column in the Philadelphia Weekly, and other newspapers all on the Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow our guest, Molina Williams, on Twitter at Molina. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth. And Nancy, we'll be back at you next week with my installment of the Savage Love Cast. down